This morning's title is pretty simple and straightforward and should not be a surprise. It is the raising of Lazarus. I'd like you to turn, for most of you that are here on a regular basis, I should actually test you with quoting the verse, but I won't. I'd like you to turn to John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31 again. Because as we come to this morning's message, and we come to, again, chapter 11 of John's gospel account, this is keeping in, we need to keep this in mind, in chapter 11, this is keeping in line with the theme of this account that's written by John. And it was told us in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, what the theme was. Therefore, many signs Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But I want you to catch verse 31, even if you're new here this morning, because the entire gospel account here is for this purpose. But these things are written. Why? So that you may believe. Believe what? That Jesus, that is the Jesus of Nazareth, is the Christ, the Son of God. Why? And that believing you may have life in his name. John has outlined for us what the purpose of the book is. And we need to keep that in mind as we come to the 11th chapter of John, this far in. It is to point out who the Messiah is, who the sent one of God, who the only Savior is. And we have seen already in our study that only God can be the Savior. And who is that one that was sent of God? Who is it? Man needs to know. And John's whole purpose in writing this book under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is that we understand that it is Jesus Christ, the Jesus of Nazareth, that is the Messiah, that is the Son of God, that is the one that we might understand who He is. So in keeping in line with that, as we've already discovered in chapter 11, for those of you who have been with us, let me remind you that the not only is the central theme the Messiah, but the central person or the central character of John chapter 11 is Jesus Christ. He is the center of this chapter, not Lazarus, not the family of Lazarus. It is the person of Jesus Christ. He is the center of the entire chapter. Lazarus had nothing to do with anything here other than obeying when he was dead. So the central character is Jesus Christ in also following along with the theme. Prior to this morning's message, as we come to verse 38, we have had four messages in John chapter 11. And all of that, for those of you who have been with us, all of that that we have seen so far is simply background to the main event that happens this morning. It is all the background to set the stage to the actual resurrection, which is the main event, of Lazarus. Let me remind you, in a nutshell here, just for a minute or two, some of the things that we have learned in chapter 11. What we have learned is, first of all, Jesus Christ, the central character of this chapter, is totally human. He was totally human, not just a myth, not someone that maybe. Uh, was around, but he was totally human, we have seen in chapter 11. He experienced emotions just like you and I have 
as we have seen in the 11th chapter, he has expressed love. We've sang about it all this month. He has expressed compassion. We have seen him angry in this chapter, as we will again this morning. And so we have seen throughout the chapter the emotions of the Lord Jesus Christ to see that he is totally human, that particular aspect of him. We also have seen that Jesus knows our individual needs as has been displayed over and over in the first 37 verses. He knows not only what our needs are, he knows how to best meet those needs. And that has been demonstrated already in the chapter by way of his disciples and how he has treated them in chapter 10 and 11. We have seen that in how he treated Martha when Martha came to him early on in the chapter and gave her instruction. And you'll remember to get her to the place where she said the very theme of the book, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God. And he very carefully, and knowing her need, and knowing how to talk to her about even the resurrection, addressed her. And then recently, we have seen how he has addressed Mary. As Mary finally came to him, and we saw his compassion from her, with her, and how he treated her different in a sense that he did from Martha or the disciples or the crowd as we're moving into that arena even this morning. So we have seen that the Lord Jesus Christ, he knows every one of us and we've applied that. So that he knows you individually. He knows everything about you. He knows your thoughts are far off. He knows things before you get there, what you're going to do and where you're going to go. He knows all about you, but he also knows how to meet the need of your individual heart or individual circumstance. And boy, it's been a delight to see how God, even when I was away from you this past week, uh, to see how God was answering prayer for Jean, who's now home waiting on the results, but how the Lord's helping her through the situation. And Shala's baby, who uh, I know some of you are praying for, and to see how God's been answering prayer there. And it's been a delight to hear. She's now been moved, the baby's now been moved to another hospital. That baby, was life was on the line. The Lord knew all about that. And he knows all about you. We have also seen one last aspect I'll give you of some of the things that we've learned in chapter 11. Again, to see, because Jesus is the focal point here, that Jesus does things according to his timing, according to his way. It seemed rather confusing to us as we approached this chapter that when he got news of a friend, remember, someone that the family said he loved, kind of a phileo love, and then he said, no, 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 I love them with agape love. And then in relationship to that, He waits two more days before he even goes to see them. And it seemed kind of strange, but we've seen that Jesus Christ will do things according to his timing and his way. Why? Because it's in line with the Father's will, and he's not on our program. And we've seen that as well. So how the Lord Jesus Christ works that way. Today, we come to the other side. What is that? We come to see not just the humanity of Christ, but we come to see Jesus Christ as God. We see his deity very clearly in the verses that I have just read to you this morning. And by the way, the Messiah must be that, fully God. He must be fully man. He must be unique, different from us, yet the same in that he took on flesh. He must be the the one that's uniquely sent by God. And we come to that in our passage this morning. As we come to this miracle beginning in verse 38 through 44, We see the seventh sign, as we read, and that's why I had you go back and read it again. 
I told you by the time we're done with the book, you will have read those verses many, many times and have them memorized. But we come to the seventh sign. There are many signs that could have been given, but this one has a specific purpose. And it's so that we understand that Jesus is indeed the Christ, the Son of God, and believing, having life through his name. We have seen him walk on water. We have seen him change water into wine. We have seen him heal in a number of situations already in the passage. The man born blind, the lame man. We've seen him feed 5,000, and now we come to the seventh one. And why is this one significant? This probably, in my opinion, is one of the most significant because he raises somebody from the dead. And that has been the cry of man. You find that in Luke's account, which I won't turn to. But in Luke chapter 16, when you have that discussion there that's going on, the saying is, if you just send somebody back from the dead, my brothers who are still on earth will believe. No, they won't, the Lord Jesus Christ said. They have the word of God. They have the message from God. They have the gospel that's given to them. If they don't believe that, they won't even believe, lest one be raised from the dead. That is what people look for, somebody to come back from the dead. And in this audience, there's no question in my mind, there are people that that's what they're looking for. Today, people are saying that just to go to the grave, that's it, it's over. No, it's not over. And our response of reading this morning was in relationship to that. It is the fool that says, how can the dead be raised up when there's so much evidence around us through creation of how the resurrection works and how a new body is taken on? And as we look at the stars and all of creation around us, it's so evident to us we can understand the resurrection. So we come to a very, very significant sign, that which is a resurrected body from the grave. So let's look at it this morning, and we pick it up in verse 38. What is the condition of Lazarus? Well, we're reminded of something we already knew. But let's pick it up in verse 38. Here it says, So Jesus, again, being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. We need to be reminded, as I mentioned earlier, this is the same word that's used in verse 33. And it's only used here and in two other cases. What is it? This is not a particular case where the Lord Jesus Christ is shedding a tear in the sense of compassion. He's upset. He's angry. That's what the word means. He is angry with the situation. Why? I would put it in its immediate context for this verse, first of all. Why? Because it would just happen as we left off in verse 37. Here he has been talking to them, and he is going to show compassion. And what happens in verse 37 was those around say, couldn't not this one who opens the eyes of a blind man? They had seen the witness of Jesus Christ. They saw the evidence of who he was, and now they say, couldn't they have, watch this, couldn't he have kept this man from dying? They saw him as somebody who could do a miracle, but his miracle might have been to heal the man before he died. They didn't see the evidence of who this person was that was standing before him who has also power over the dead and can even raise a dead person. They didn't see that capacity. They didn't see Jesus Christ for who he really was. And while the text does not totally tell us really why he's angry, though it states it in verse 33, and it states it again in verse 38, I've got to believe because of the immediate context that that is part of the reason. Because of their lack of faith in trusting with all the evidence that has been placed before them. It is further because of the ramifications of sin. Because before them is the evidence of sin. The wages of sin is death. 
It tells us that very clearly in Romans. And what they have in front of them now is the evidence of just how man's sin is so devastating. It separates us from God, our God of creation. It even separates us from life. And now before them, you remember you've got people that are wailing in the sense of their professional criers at a funeral, if you will. And he's looking around at all this religion, and he's looking at the effects of sin, and the people before them just don't get it. They're holding on to their religion. Maybe they're holding on to their good works. Maybe they're just hoping that, remember what Martha said. Martha didn't see Jesus resurrecting her brother. Martha saw the resurrection of the future in the last day. And even she didn't see what the Lord was going to do. All this evidence before them. And I think it's part of the anger that comes out there in him. So what does he do? He simply says, remove the stone. That's what he says. So he comes to the tomb, and now it was a cave. And that was very common. I'm not going to get into the detail on that. Very common that the Jews, and still today, they bury the body pretty quickly. There's a very limited amount, if you even want to call it that, of embalming. Back then, a lot of it had to do with spices. It wasn't the embalming like the Egyptians did or anything like that. So they come, they put him in a tomb, and it was very common to have a stone. Some of them would be rolled, some of them would be placed, depending upon the size and everything else. So he's there. And what is the condition of Lazarus? We don't have to guess. It is The scriptures are very open, very vivid, very descriptive. Are they not? Look at verse 39. In verse 39 we see it. Jesus says, remove the stone, and Martha comes to him and says, wait a minute, the sister of the deceased, so we know that from the context, says to him, Lord, by this time there's a stench. That's pretty descriptive, isn't it? He stinks. He's decaying by now. Why would that be the case? Well, he's been dead four days. Four days. Martha is very, very descriptive, and we can see it. He says, you don't want to open that tomb. You can imagine. Now put yourself just emotionally into this situation. They don't want to see their brother in this stage. Would you want to see a loved one in this stage when you know they're beginning to decay and the stench is terrible and that's going to be the last memory that you have of them as far as you're concerned and everyone around you? You would not want your children or your grandchildren there. You wouldn't want anybody to see that. Well, it's an evidence, by the way, of just what sin does again. The stench of it and the cause of decaying and the evidence of it. Be reminded of what we saw in the rabbinic writings. That I personally do believe that was why, part of the reason why the Lord waited four days. Because they had the concept that, again, for those of you who weren't here, that the spirits went around the body and they could come back into the body and resurrect it. But by fourth day, it was over. There was no possibility for that. And so it's very specific. The Lord wants everybody that's going to witness this to realize this person is not just looking like they're dead. They smell like they're dead. They are dead. And there's only one possibility for a resurrection. And that is if God intervenes. This is no healing service. This is no call to Saturday night meeting. This takes the hand of Almighty God and everyone there knows it. Even the religious leaders 
with their superstitions know it. They cannot resurrect this body. No hocus pocus works in this situation. And so it's right. The Lord Jesus Christ has them right where he wants them. With all the evidence in front of them. So Martha, while we may jump on her, although if you've been with us, you realize she was one that really did love the Lord. Just a little different personality, that's all. What happens? Well, they come. Not only that, I probably should say this for the benefit of us to understand. Not only do we have the decaying body, not only do we have the rabbinic writings, but I personally believe even the tense of the verb here helps us. Because Martha uses the perfect tense. And I believe what the significance of that is she's basically saying to him, Jesus, he's dead. He's going to remain dead. Nothing can change this now. He's in the state that's going to continue. Until, in her mind, by the context, verses 20 to 25, until the last day. Nothing can change this, Jesus. Why do you want to go there? Why would you want to smell this? Only God can change the situation. So what happens? Well, you get the comment that happens in verse 40. Jesus says to her, Did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? Now, that's an interesting statement even in the context. Just a few words on that. The only one he really said that to, if you go back to verse 4 for just a moment, was his disciples. In verse 4, he said, But when Jesus heard this, that is that Lazarus was sick, notice what he said. This sickness is not to end in death. That is not where it's going to stop. Why? Verse 4, But for the glory of God, why would that be? So that the Son of God, that is Jesus Christ, watch, may be glorified by it. It is to give glory to God. It is to reveal to you who Jesus Christ is. When he told that to his disciples before he ever went and met Martha. Now, as far as we know, at least as revealed in the context, he never said those words to Martha himself. So either the disciples told Martha what he said, or he's just simply summarizing everything that he's been talking about with Martha. That this doesn't end here. It's for the glory of God. The issue is belief. The issue is faith. The issue is faith specifically in the Lord Jesus Christ. In the Messiah. Probably a summary statement. I'll put it to you this way. I believe what Jesus is saying before we get to the miracle, and we need to hear this, is this. Stop focusing on the stench. Stop your focus on Lazarus. Stop your focus on the results of sin. Focus on the remedy. It's not religion. It's not what you can do. The remedy is standing in front of you. It is the person of Jesus Christ. He's the only one. And I believe that's all involved in verse 5. This is for the glory of God. It's to display who the Son of God is. And it's the same thing that you and I do. We focus in on the problems of life rather than focusing in on God and what He can do. It doesn't matter what the situation. We prayed for somebody with cancer today. We focus in on the problems. And by the way, we need to realize the consequences of sin. The mankind doesn't want to talk about sin. The wages of sin is death. 
Not only physical, but spiritual separation from God for all eternity. Apart from God doing a work through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Apart from Him taking action. And even though Martha has confessed that Jesus is the Christ, he's basically saying this is for the glory of God. Get your attention off your brother and look at who I am. Let me put it to you this way. Get your attention off religion. Get your attention off of church. Get your attention off yourself. And put your attention on the only Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the only one that can save. No church on the face of the earth has the remedy over death. I'll come back to that. And even power to do what we're going to see. Only God can do this. No miracle worker. No gifted human being. And Martha's attention and Mary's attention and everybody else's attention is still on the stinking body. Rather than on the glorious solution found in Jesus Christ. So what does he do? He prays. Notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't even ask a request of the Father. He says in verses 41 and 42, here's the prayer of Jesus. So they removed the stone, they obeyed. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you. All he does is thank the Father. He knows what he's going to do. He knows what the Father is going to do through him. He knows that he always is in harmony with the will of the Father. He doesn't even have to ask him for the resurrection of Jesus Christ, of, of Lazarus. He knows it's in the perfect will of the Father. And he knows what he's going to do. And so what does he do? He involves himself with thankfulness. Notice he involves, by the way, people. God's chosen to do that. Give me a little side trip. Allow me a little grace here for a second. I looked at this text, and when I studied it, I say, here he's going to resurrect a body. Why didn't he just say, stone, see you later, goodbye. Could he have done that? Absolutely. He chose to involve people. He chose, guys, move the stone. You do. Why? I believe he wanted them involved. I believe he wanted everybody to see this is no hocus pocus. They knew what they were doing. They saw the whole situation. He would have witnesses around that could go tell everybody else what really happened. There's no trickery here. And by the way, I said, allow me the grace, because I'm going to extend it far beyond really the text. But that's really how the gospel works. Jesus Christ could just come down and say, I'm going to save you, I'm going to do this. He's chosen to use the power of the gospel. He's chosen to use the word of God. And he's chosen to use the likes of you and I to go. You witnessed two people this morning that gave testimony to Jesus Christ changing their life. And if you've trusted in Christ, he's chosen to use you to go out and give the message. He can do it all by himself if he wants to. He's chosen not to do it. He's chosen to use the likes of us. But he's just thankful. Why? This is for the benefit of man. How do we know that? He says so. Look. Then Jesus, after he raised his hand and he says, thank you, he says this, verse 42, I knew that you always hear me, but because, he tells us, of the people standing around, I want them to see the evidence of who you are and that I am the one that you 
sent. He wants them all to witness it. That's why he's praying this way. He's showing the harmony that the Father has with the Son. This is perfect unity between the God, the creator of the universe, and the Son whom he sent. And he does everything according to his will, and he wants everybody to evidence that. He didn't have to do this. He wants them to see the power of God. He wants to see that God's involved in the process as well as the method and everything else you can think of when it comes to salvation. And so it's for the benefit of those that are standing around. What benefit? He tells you, verse 42, so that, here is the reason why, that they may believe that you sent me. You see, this is the whole focus of chapter 11. This miracle that's about to take place, I'm thanking you that it's going to take place, and I'm saying this for the benefit of everybody around so that everyone would realize that I am the Messiah. That I am the one sent by you. That I am the way, the truth, and the life that we haven't gotten there yet. That God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, and that son is Jesus Christ. That's why the miracle is going to take place. That's why it's going to take place. And so we actually come to the raising of Lazarus. Verses 43 and 44. The actions of Jesus. And when they had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice. Now I can't duplicate that because the word cried out means that he shouted to begin with. And then it says again that he shouted and he shouted with a loud voice. Maybe for emphasis. Why? It wasn't because he was afraid that everybody was deaf. And it wasn't because he could have whispered and said, hey, he didn't want to do that. So he just chose with a loud voice so everybody around could hear. And everybody knew what was going on. No tricks, whatever. And what does he say? He simply says this. He says, Lazarus, come forth. Now Augustine, many, many people quote him, was probably right. That if he didn't say Lazarus, maybe everybody would have come out of the grave. That's not original with me. That goes back. That's not original with any commentary you read. That goes back a while. Goes back a while. But that's all he said. Lazarus, literally. Lazarus, here, outside. That's kind of a broad translation, but it's really what it means. Come out of the grave, over here. Almost like you say to a dog, hey, come here. That's what he says. Lazarus, come on. Lazarus has nothing to do with it. He's dead. He's so dead that he stinks. And Jesus calls him forth. There's no trickery. Watch this. There's no faith on the Lazarus, Lazarus path whereby he's going to believe hard enough that he can be resurrected. He's dead. He stinks. And what I'm trying to demonstrate to you, what the Lord's trying to demonstrate in chapter 11, is the power of God and how salvation works. God absolutely does the calling God absolutely picks out and pulls a person out of death. That's what he does. That's what he does. And Lazarus doesn't disobey and say, hey, no, I'm enjoying this state. I'm in. In verse 44, the man who had died came forth. That is the power of God, my friend. Only God can call forth a body from death. And as I've said to you from this pulpit before, Sometimes people wrestle with that with a resurrection. But my relatives have been dead. My great-great-grandfather and grandmother have been dead. There's nothing left, even the bones of God. How could God raise that up? 
If God created the whole universe, you think it's a big problem to turn around to your great-great-grandfather, grandmother, and say, come back, no big deal whatsoever. Why? He's God. And we've already seen in our study of John, listen, the day's coming, my friend, in which every person that's in the grave will be called forth. Some to resurrection of life, but some to resurrection of death. There is not a person in this room that will escape death. You will not. Why? Because the wages of sin is death. That is why you're going to die, because you are a sinner in rebellion against the Holy God. But the gift of God is eternal life, and it only comes through God's plan and God's way, and that is the person of Jesus Christ. That's the whole point of chapter 11. Who is the only one that can take a person physically? Now, this isn't even the future resurrection. Who's the only one that can take a person who's decaying and been dead four days and bring them back to life? God and only God. Yes, Jesus Christ is fully man with compassion. Abel, as we saw, a different word, to shed a tear and really feel that compassion. And also to turn around and call the body forth from the grave. Why? Because he is the only one sent from God to save. Complete response. And just as it comes to death, you will not be able to hold back. When it comes time for you to die, you will not be able to fight that and say, I am." I hear about that all the time, and I understand. They're holding on to life. And Look, at when God says it's over, it's over. In fact, this week, as I just shared with you, uh, my daughter got married, and uh, it was two days before the wedding that uh, she was at work. She's a paramedic, as most of you know, and they revived a person in the sense his heart had stopped, and Aaron had worked hard, and uh, they, they were able to get the heart going again, got them into the hospital, and she was really thrilled, and then she got a call the day before the wedding that he had died. And she was a witness to the family that was around including my mother-in-law, because she turned around and she, she felt it. She, she really felt the loss of this man because she was part of it and so forth. And she turned around and said to everybody, when God says it's time to die, it's time to die. And that's true for everyone in this room. And when God says that life only comes one way, he means it only comes one way. And that's his whole point of this resurrection. So that people would see that the one who's calling that person forth from the grave to the glory of God, that they might glorify the Son who is God, who has the power to bring back a dead man to life. What is the application in line with what we had today? Would you turn with me to the book of Ephesians chapter 2 for a moment? Those of you that came, and if there are any visitors in the audience today, you witnessed the baptism of two people. Did that save them? Did that cleanse them of their sins? Did that give them life? The answer is no. It did not. They testified to the fact of what these people need to see in John 11. That Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That He is the Christ. And that by believing on Him, faith in Him, in Him alone, by grace alone, 
they can come to salvation. And they did, and they testified to that. Why is that necessary? I want you to see Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that now worketh in the sons of disobedience. Among them we all, are we too, all formerly lived. How? In the lust of the flesh, that's sin. In the indulgence of desires, the desires of the flesh, and of the mind, and we're, watch this, by nature, the children of wrath. All men have sinned and come short of the glory of God. What you're witnessing by visual aid in, in John chapter 11 is the physical resurrection of a man who's been dead four days, has, can do nothing for himself. He's just a bystander, a dead bystander that Jesus Christ calls forth and gives life to. He gave life to the death physically. And you're going to see by the time we get into chapter 12 that Lazarus is eating with the Lord Jesus Christ. But beyond that, what I want you to see, what you witness with the baptisms, and the whole point of this is to see that only God can give spiritual life as well to a dead person. You say, but I'm not dead, I'm here physically. You're alive physically, but if you haven't come to Christ, you are dead and can do nothing. And just like Lazarus could do nothing but come to the Savior, you need to come to Jesus Christ, and it only comes when He calls. And how does he call? Through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the only Messiah. Not Buddha. Not Mary Baker Eddy. Not anyone that you can think of. Not Muhammad. Jesus Christ is the only Savior of the world. He was the only one who without sin could perform the substitutionary sacrifice as the sinless, sacrificial Lamb of God to satisfy a just and holy God. We've all come short of the glory of God. But God did so love us that He sent the remedy. Get your eyes off your own goodness. Get your eyes off your own religion. Get your eyes off the philosophies and religion of this world. We are all sinners and all need God's grace. It's been provided through Jesus Christ. When he died on the cross, he satisfactorily paid the penalty and price for the wrath of God. The issue is faith in his completed work. He didn't stay in the grave. He rose from the grave victorious. He's seated at the right hand of God and he's coming again. And the only way as a dead spiritual person you can have life comes just like you're seeing in chapter 11. Turn with me to one more passage. Go with me to Romans 5. These people didn't get saved by the baptism. I asked one of them, Kurt Parquette asked another one, whether they had trusted by faith in the work of Jesus Christ alone and what they wanted to see in chapter 11 and what Jesus Christ wants them to see is that He's the Messiah. He's the one that's able to take the dead 
and bring them to life, not just physically, but spiritually. He's the Christ of God. And in Romans chapter 5, let me just pick it up in verse 6. Allow me a few verses here. Watch this. While we were still helpless, at the right time, God picked the perfect timing. Christ died for what? The ungodly. Too many people think they're not ungodly. That they're okay. Let me ask you to do this. Compare yourself to God. You'll quickly find out you're not okay. But all my friends will be in hell. What a terrible place to be. I'll just have a party with them. No, you won't. Satan's not in charge of hell. He's in hell. God controls it all. And the only way you'll be in the presence of God if you understand what I'm about to read. For one will hardly die for the righteous man. Go down to verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love. Here it is toward us. How? In that while we were yet sinners in that state of death, in that state of separation from God, Christ died for us. Verse 10. For if while we were what? Enemies. We were reconciled to God. How? Through the death of His Son. That's what happens. And the whole point of chapter 11 isn't to give us a nice story about a man who was dead and was brought to life and then had to die again. It was a visual aid to demonstrate the glory of God so that we would understand that this person, Jesus Christ, is the Son of God. He is the Messiah of God and that just as He raised that dead body to life, He can give us spiritual life and He's the only one that can give us spiritual life and raise somebody from death unto life spiritually. What you witnessed in the baptisms and what you're seeing in John chapter 11 is for that point. Have you come to the place to place your faith in Christ? The finished work that satisfied God? The only finished work that could be the only work that would satisfy a righteous and holy God? If your faith is not in Him, you're dead. You're already got your foot in hell. You're just waiting to die to get there. And the only one that can restore you to life, the only one that can restore you to a relationship to God, the only one that can give you the assurance of forgiveness of sins and the gift of eternal life is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who is the Messiah. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. One last comment for believers. Start getting your eyes off of the things around you and get your eyes on Jesus Christ. He's the one that's bought you. He's the one you belong to. You are no longer your own. Live for Him. We get overwhelmed by circumstances and trials. We get so put down rather than seeing what God is trying to do to mold us to the image of His Son and how He's perfecting us for glory. Walk with Him the way you should. Be a witness. Go out and give the gospel. That's what the people of this world need. Let's close in prayer. Our Father in God, I thank You and praise You for this miraculous work that can only be done by God. 
the raising of Lazarus from the dead. But Lord, help us not to focus on Lazarus. Help us to focus on the one who called him forth from the grave, who is in perfect harmony with the Father, Jesus Christ. That we might understand that he is the only way of salvation. And Father, there are many in this room that are near the end of their life. We don't know when we'll die. But Father, we also know that our age comes up on us so fast. And it won't be long before we are in the condition that Lazarus was in, to be physically dead. Father, there's no doubt in my mind in this audience there are those who are spiritually dead and have not yet come to Christ. Open their eyes that they might see the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ. That they might trust in Jesus Christ and His finished work that satisfied your righteousness. That when He died on the cross, they might understand that He was to pay sin, pay the price of sin. That they might believe on Him and have the gift of eternal life. Father, my heart's prayer is that no one in this audience would go to the grave physically to spend eternity separated from the God of the universe. Help them to trust in Jesus Christ, who is the only way, the only name given among men, whereby we must be saved. And help believers to go out of here, encouraged to keep our eyes focused on the author and finisher of our faith, that we might walk with you for the glory of the Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.